This is Mission.org. On this episode of Marketing Trends, we do a deep dive with the legendary entrepreneur and multi-time CMO, Christopher Lockett. Christopher is the co-author of the book, Play Bigger, which details how category creation and category kings rule business. He's also the author of Niche Down, which details how you build those categories in those niche markets. Christopher is a good buddy of the missions and is a phenomenal marketer. You're really going to love this episode. And we go on all sorts of directions as we always do with Chris. Enjoy. Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce Pardot, B2B marketing automation on the world's number one CRM. Are you ready to take your B2B marketing to new heights? With Pardot, marketers can find and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast, or click on the link in our show notes. Welcome to Marketing Trends. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at The Mission, and I am joined by our special guest and friend, our podcast buddy, right across, right over the mountains here, Christopher Lockett. How's it going? It's going great, Ian. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I could not be more stoked to be with you. You, you. you know this already, but I'm such a huge fan of yours and of Chad's and of what you guys are doing and what you guys have built so quickly. And I think you are an inspiring uh, new model of, of, of what is possible in, in the new world in media. And I think it's great. Thanks so much. I, it's, I need to, we need to get on the phone more because I always appreciate your, uh, your wisdom, but also your... Uh, a little bit of the cheerleading that you do. Well, you know, I've always been this way. You know, I get enthusiastic about things I find exciting and interesting and people who I respect and admire. And I had this aha in the last year and a half or so. I've had this uh, incredible, insane gift in my life in the last uh, year and a half or so, whose name is Bill Walton. And, you know, the NBA Hall of Fame says he's one of the 50 greatest players ever. And I met him at a speaking gig. I was the opening act and he was the closing act. And he and I have just had a great connection. And it's it's a crazy thing in your life to have Bill Walton in your inbox. I got to tell you. <laughs> I, that is crazy. It is very crazy. And um, one of the things I love about Bill is he is, his enthusiasm, his curiosity. And when he finds something he likes, he promotes the snot out of it. Oh, I have to speak nicely, right? I can't talking pirate yeah, talk if, if there's any slips we'll uh, we'll bleep you out <laughs> i'll i'll try to keep the pirate lingo to a minimum but and he he sort of rekindled in me you know when you find people and, and things that are really awesome why not be a cheerleader for them you know he's been a tremendous cheerleader for me and i i will be forever grateful you know he, he promotes my books on espn when he's when he's calling basketball games and stuff it's the most crazy thing it's so incredible and he does it for all kinds of people you know whether it's musicians or authors or you know he's just that kind of a guy and um anyway so long story longer uh yeah i'm a huge fan and uh, i i like being a promoter of, of yours well we love promoting your stuff and i can say two quick anecdotes about you so first off, when I was prepping for the podcast uh, today and going over stuff with our producer, for some reason, Crazy Train was like stuck in my head. And I think it was for some reason I'm thinking of you. And that song popped into my head, which I feel like is very appropriate. If you've never listened to, to Chris or read his work or listened to the podcast, 
I'm not saying you're crazy train. I'm just saying sometimes your 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 brain does weird things. <laughs> and I'm a huge Aussie fan. There you go. I remember when that song came out and, you know, obviously Black Sabbath fan and you if you like any kind of hard rock, I mean, most people consider Black Sabbath to be the category designers of heavy metal. That's I've never I've never thought about that, but that's a great man. We should do an entire category design episode of maybe it'll be a marketing trends bonus episode or something of just musicians that crushed category design. Right? I mean, think about, you know, no Bob Marley. Do we do we get reggae? I don't know. I mean, maybe somebody else does it, but maybe not, right? Of course, my favorite band of all time, the Ramones, who are who are the category designers of punk rock. And you know, and, and actually there's an interesting point here which is a big aha for me in, in this whole work of category design, which is if you take it sort of even up a level on the personal level and with artists and with politicians and thought leaders of any kind, the people and companies and brands that we respect and admire the most always are the ones that broke and took new ground, always were the ones who did something original, right? Always felt like the first to do something. We don't know who the 47th most popular reggae band is, but we all know who Bob is, right? And, and it's the same thing in art, and it's the same thing in a lot of domains. And so, yeah, that would be a fun episode. But I think there's a lot for all of us to learn from different domains, whether it's politics or art or music or what have you, what those pioneers did to break and take new ground and ultimately design a category that they dominated. So the second antidote that I have is I first came across your work a few years ago and it was like an 11 minute podcast episode where you did, I think it was just on Legends and Losers that you did a quick hitter on category design. That was it. And I have no idea how I came across it. And I listened to this and I was like, oh my goodness, like this dude gets it. This is like the first time I've heard this this thing that I'd been thinking about for a long time and kind of an important piece of the toolkit for, for my marketing toolkit as we were thinking about the mission and also as talking to a lot of marketers that I know. And I came across the book, Play Bigger. So you co-authored the book, Play Bigger, How Pirates, Dreamers, and Innovators Create and Dominate Markets and started listening to your podcast, but also you know, read through the book. Uh, eventually now I've read Niche Down and this idea of category creation, category design, is something that it's wild to me is not more popular in terms of how it is taught in schoolhouses, in marketing schools, and all of that. It would seem to me that it would be marketing 101, and we'll get into why that is, but it was something that I think any marketer, if you haven't read the book, play bigger, go read it right now. You'll love it. It's great. But it also brings together a lot of the threads that you might be missing from this kind of product creation, product design, marketing, sales. Where does this all play? How can we position our company and our brand in the best way? Well, first of all, thank you for those kind comments, Ian. You have no idea how much it means to me. I mean, I literally poured 30 years of my life into the 270-ish pages of, of Play Bigger and, and then did it again with Niche Down. I don't think you can write those kinds of books. And I've talked to a lot of other authors like this where you're 
you know, it's a huge part of your life's work. The other thing, to be candid with you, I'm so glad it resonates. And I, you know, I've been blown over by the success of both the books. And the reason for it is for the bulk of my career, sharing these ideas with people for the better part of 30 years, I would say my batting average was about 200. You know, that is to say the vast majority of people didn't get it, didn't want to listen to it. And so now the fact that, you know, I hear from headhunters that category design is the number one skill set that is looked for today in Silicon Valley in a CMO. Like that blows me away. And it makes me very, very happy because I think it is a, a, a sort of secret superpower, if you will. And the fact that the world is getting it, A, I get to give it to the world, which is what I wanted to do in writing these books. And B, probably more importantly, on a personal side, if if that hadn't happened, I'm just the nutty guy in the corner drooling on himself, right? <laughs> in a lot of ways, Play Bigger was my last attempt. It's like, well, I, I don't know how else to try to get the world to get these ideas. So I'm going to write this book with my you know buddies, and hopefully it's going to go. And now it has, and and now it's making a difference to so many entrepreneurs and marketers. And anyway, the long-winded way of saying, it really blows me away that you feel that way, and, and thank you. And I think it also speaks to this kind of need in all of us to share thoughts with the world. And like, obviously, you know, we're a media company at the mission, so we have tons of podcasts and marketing trends being our marketing focus one for marketing leaders. But the thing that's so interesting to me is that we all have these thoughts that just nod us over and over and over again, and they don't go away. And a lot of times there's an imposter syndrome there. Like if you're a marketer, you're like, man, I've always wanted to do this one campaign. I think this would crush. Like if I could get whoever, if I could get Tom Cruise and Natalie Portman in a room to talk about whatever it is, some, some change that we want to see in the world. I think that that campaign would do really well or whatever, whatever that thing is. But you kind of feel this imposter syndrome sometimes where you're like, no, it's just not that good of an idea or, or it's not worth putting out there. And I think that your book is a testament to a lot of these ideas similar to, you know, in, in my opinion, something like the lean, lean startup movement or, you know, some of these other newer age models that are going to endure for a long time because no one had really talked about them. And then everyone just said, oh, wow, now I kind of get it. Yeah. Well, that's very kind of you to say. And what I was really trying to do is take what legendary innovators, entrepreneurs, and marketers have done intuitively and, and, and break it down into an approach that can be repeatable. And, and take it from being sort of in the back of people's minds to being in the front of people's minds, right? Because when you really look at it, Ian, it's very clear that what the legends do as they approach the marketplace is meaningfully different than what most of us do. And so category design is my attempt, is our attempt to unpack that thing because what the legends did, whether it was Henry Ford or Sarah Blakely or anybody in between, they didn't compete in a traditional sense. We get taught that the way to win is to build a legendary product and a legendary company and put it out in the world. And once the world sees it, the world will figure it out. And that's just not true. And the other thing that we get taught is to compete 
on a dimension called better. Pepsi for years spent billions of dollars on this thing they called the Pepsi Challenge. And they would say, you know, four out of five people think Pepsi tastes better than Coke. And when, they, when, when I say, hey, Ian, four out of five people think Pepsi tastes better than Coke, what is left in your mind? Coke? Yes. Pepsi spent billions of dollars telling people the reference point, the leader, the designer in the cola category is Coke. And legends do not want to be compared. They want everyone else to be compared to them. The BlackBerry was the leader in the mobile phone by like a mile when Jobs launches the iPhone, right? He pretends it didn't happen, right? He wants to be first in the minds of the world and he makes it true, right? And he doesn't compete on features. He competes on a whole new way of thinking. And once you begin to understand that, you're like, what? What, what, what? Legendary innovators teach the world to think differently. They, that's right. And, and in specific about a problem and therefore a solution. And then there's, there's the way the human brain works, which is we're pack animals. So every, every buyer of the Sushi Rito makes me feel more comfortable about trying a Sushi Rito. Have you tried one? Yeah, I had one. I had one yesterday. <laughs> They're so good. I love it. They're so good. My wife introduced me to them. And that's legendary category design, right? First of all, bringing together two things that most people wouldn't have connected, sushi and a burrito. And second of all, solving a problem that most people never thought of, which is how do you eat sushi on the go? Well, if you wrap it up like a burrito, you can eat it on the go. Because in the past, you had to have a plastic thing and you're in the car and it gets all over the place and it's, it's a disaster. And as you know, restaurants are one of the mega categories that have the most amount of entrepreneurial failure. And these guys have seven or eight locations and they're killing it. And they've taught us all how to think about sushi in a completely different way. And it's an incredible product as well, right? So another legendary category design example, you know, you talked earlier before we came on about, about the magic triangle, product, company, and category and getting all three right, right? If most sushi entrepreneurs... Think about, well, well, let's get a great location for our restaurant. Let's get a great restaurant with great service and great food, and we'll win. Well, maybe we will, maybe we won't. But when we design a whole new category of sushi restaurant that we can be the designers of, and we can d design the game that we want to be played, and we can tell people how to think of us, and we can tell people on what basis they should compare us to what, we're the reference point. So you're not just you know, Ian and Chris's sushi restaurant du jour, it's a whole new category of sushi Rito. I, it's such a great example. And the magic triangle is something that the savvy technology entrepreneurs, founders, CEOs are proactive about designing their product, designing their company and designing their category at the same time. What I think we would both obviously add to this for this conversation is the CMO needs to have a huge role in that. And hint, it's not the product, it's not the company, it's the category. Like you should be owning that category design and all of the messaging that flows from that and ultimately all of the sales that flow from that need to be kind of in that magic triangle. Where do you see the CMO's role in the creation of category, like in the not too distant future. So let me say something that might sound like it's in opposition with itself, but hopefully unpack it. Number one, I think 
the CEO needs to be the leader of the charge of category design in the company because category design is not just a marketing function. And so it needs to be viewed as her project, as her initiative, and it touches every part of the company. That said, make no mistake, the legendary CMOs of the future are category designers. I know this for a fact because it happened in my career. What made me, what made me at the time one of the most sought after CMOs in Silicon Valley was this is my superpower. And I'll tell you specifically the way I used to talk to CEOs about it and frankly still talk to CEOs as, as an advisor investor about it when they have conversations about, about potentially working with me, which is, hey, listen, if you want someone who can keep the trains running on time, who can drive demand, who can do good product marketing, who can do good brand, you know, all the key PR, all the key things, sales enablement, all the good day in, day out marketing stuff that you need to be great at as a CMO. When I was a CMO, I'd say, well, look, if you need somebody who can do that, then you should go hire somebody who can do that. I can do all those things, but that's not my superpower. My superpower is this. I know how to design and dominate categories. I know how to set agendas with points of view such that the world thinks the way we want about what we do and, and in specific problem and, solu uh, and a solution. And then position the company to become the category queen or king in that category that we are the principal designers of and to mobilize the company to go get after that. That's my superpower. And what I know is the other CMOs who have that superpower live under this thing you could call the Lifetime Employment Act. <laughs> they're always in demand. They're, they're, best I can tell, there will always be massive demand for CMOs and frankly, entrepreneurs, CEOs, anybody really who's entrepreneurial who can prosecute that magic triangle and who has the ability to teach a market to think in a completely different way. So for those of you who haven't read the book, we'll, we'll spoil a little bit here as we've kind of already done is that it's this idea of the category king, the category queen, the person who is the gold standard, who you imagine when you think of solving that need, they're the only people who come to mind. The role of the marketer is a lot about education around the category, not the product. And I think that this is a huge differentiator. We talk about, you know, Steve Jobs and actually in the 40 years of Apple ads, we talked about how much education Apple did around computing and how much education they did around this is the market that we're trying to, you know, develop that kind of like market development. But ultimately, it's, it was a category that they were only fighting where they could win. They were never, ever, ever going to lose in that category ever because they were making it. They were the ones setting yes. the conditions in which they were selling into. And that's like the biggest reason why Apple was so successful because once you create that category and you create the exact right product that fills it, then you, you know, to the vector go to the spoils. Conversely, if you create a really good category and you market that category and your product sucks, you're not going to win it because ultimately you're not fulfilling that promise. Is that right? Well, yes. And I would even go a step further. You talk about Google Plus. I would argue Google Plus was a very compelling product. And you could even argue it was a better product than Facebook. But this is the rub. 
Nobody wins by playing a better product game. Nobody. It's impossible. Because the minute Google Plus says we're better than Facebook, just like Pepsi, everybody's like, well, Facebook is the reference point. And the way the human mind works is if you're the category leader, if you have, you know, we could talk about the research if you like, but the net of it is for Play Bigger, we analyzed every venture-backed company founded in tech from 2000 to 2015, and we looked at all of the funding data, avail- all the funding and valuation data available, and we asked a question that had never been asked before, because if it had, we would have happily published somebody else's research and not had to do it ourselves. And the question is, what percentage, not of market share, but of market cap, that is to say total value created, whether it's valuation in a pre-IPO situation or market cap in a post-IPO situation, but what percentage of all the value of all the companies in any given category goes to the leader of the category queen or category king? That number is 76%. So whether we like it or not, we are playing in a winner-take-all world where as, as categories develop and grow, one company is going to take two-thirds of the economics. And so the question that behooves all of us as marketers, as entrepreneurs, as founders, as CEOs, as CFOs, as whatevers, is how do we become the company that designs and dominates a giant category and how do we execute, to get back to the magic triangle, across product, company, and category such that we take two-thirds of the economics. And if we can do that, we're going to build a legendary business. And if we can't do that, we're going to be fighting for essentially the table scraps. We're going to, 15 companies are easily fighting for a quarter of the economics. And I can tell you, having been on both the winning side and the losing side of these battles, winning is way better than losing. So let's talk about how you did that as a CMO and ultimately like how other CMOs can do that now. You had a career as a CMO and as a founder, multi-time CMO, as a founder. What were some of those secrets, those ways that you were implementing that, the way that you were positioning category design and category creation back when you were a CMO? So the first one is one we touched on, Ian, which is make the CEO the hero, internally and externally. This is her initiative. This is his initiative. You as the CMO are driving it, empowering it, whatever, you know, whatever, however you want to talk about it. But the CEO needs to be out in front. I believe the E in CEO stands for evangelist. And so your CEO, I don't care whether introverted or extroverted, there is no option today. If you're a CEO of a company that's trying to design and dominate a category, that CEO needs to be out in front. And I did this with CEOs who were very extroverted and loved to do it. And I did it with CEOs who were very introverted, very engineering oriented and hated to do it and got them to do it. So first of all, the partnership with the CEO is everything and the world internally and externally needs to fundamentally believe that this is the CEO's initiative and that needs to be true. And you need to have that powerful relationship. That's the first. That's really, that's so interesting. I mean, I think how much pushback did you get and like, how do you kind of like navigate that pushback? Pushback from the CEO or pushback from who? Yeah, yeah, pushback or pushback from the board or other executives, people saying, oh, they're not the right person or, or you know, hey, why are we going to put so much, you know, effort? You know, it's really interesting. I, I, gosh, I always anecdote my own, my own questions, but like you look at what T-Mobile has done. They've been running Twitter ads for their CEO for years promoting. Yeah, it's crazy. It's really crazy. I'm not saying it's bad or a good thing. 
but it's really interesting because I don't know what the play is. I, I really don't think it's, hey, we just want to get this guy a lot of Twitter followers. I think that there is an amount of brand equity in building up that person's name to be popular. I would have never known who their CEO was, but it's like John Levier or whatever. I don't know how to pronounce the name. So that's because I've been reading it this whole time on Twitter. But it's really interesting. I mean, like that is Mark Benioff does the same thing. You know, shout out to Salesforce as the sponsor of the podcast, Salesforce Bardot. They promote his tweets all the, the same time. I mean, it, it's a really interesting thing in the age of social media where you can actually quantify some of the things that you're doing. I mean, and yeah. anyways, so I'll, I'll turn over the question and then also can it look at it with the lens of social media now and all of that sort of stuff. I think there's definitely some metrics in there that like are not actual, you know, real measures of success. But if you were to talk to people within the industry about where they see those CEOs as thought leaders, I, I would bet that they probably lean that way. And, and I think there's no choice today. I think you have to be out in front as a CEO. Now, getting to the CMO, so I think that's the first thing. And your job is to make that CEO successful. And make no mistake, if people think this is a messaging exercise, if people think this is a branding exercise, you are, and I'll just use the first letter, f It's not. It's about aligning product. It's about aligning business model. It's about aligning go-to-market, building an ecosystem, all of those things to go prosecute the magic triangle. That is to say, get company design, product design, and category design right. And the only person who can drive that level of executive alignment is the CEO. Now, if you get the CEO to that place, and I was able to do it a couple times, and, and you know, for CMOs listening, you can do that. You can absolutely do that. And I, I can tell you how to pressure test CEOs if you want. Because as an advisor and investor, I do a lot of CEO pressure testing because I spend a lot of time telling people to go after themselves when they ask me to help them because most people are kidding about the, pro the prosecuting the magic triangle. We'll talk about that if you like. But you can get your CEO there. And if the CEO gets it in her bones that category design is one-third of her job, just like product and company are the other two-thirds, then now we're talking. Okay, so you get to that place. Now, as a CMO, I want to be... Sidecar to the CEO driving this thing across the company. And I can share with you some tactical things you can do to do that. The two biggest rub areas for marketing in most companies are sales hates marketing and product slash engineering hates marketing and generally vice versa, right? And that's been true forever. So as a CMO, here's what I think you should do. First of all, we all get the same paycheck from the same company. There's no scenario under which marketing wins and sales loses, right? So let's yep. get our heads straight. So what do you do as a CMO to drive massive interlock, massive collaboration and cooperation about that? Here's two suggestions. Number one, as a CMO, spend 50% of your time in the field. Make becoming the most requested executive by your sales organization on a sales call, a personal goal of yours. And if you're in the field 50% of the time and you're going on sales calls and the, and the sales force respects you because you are an ass-kicking ninja on a sales call that customers respect, you will learn a ton about your market, a ton about your category, a ton about your salespeople, and you will break that whole thing between sales and marketing and, and partner like a madman with the head of, of sales. I always, as a CMO, 
it wasn't, you know, I'll give you an example. My last CMO gig, the head of market, head of sales name was um, Jay Larson. Unbelievable guy. He's now a multi-time successful CEO. I love and respect him. He's the CEO of a company called Burst today. The quarterly number was not Jay's number. It was my number too. And I thought it was all of our numbers. You know, the top six or eight people in the company, don't be confused, right? So I partnered deeply. I spent half my time in the field. And there's a whole bunch, and, and that sends a giant message to the way your organization behaves as it relates to their support of the field. On the engineering side, here's a radical idea. Swap jobs with the head of engineering two to four times a year for a week. I love it. And it was the most powerful thing I ever did to get deeply connected with our engineering organization. It was the most powerful thing our head of engineering could have done to get deeply connected with our marketing organization. When I did this at Mercury, engineering was in, was in Israel. And so I would literally fly to Tel Aviv for a week. And I always had a great time being there. By the way, if you haven't been to Tel Aviv, you need to go. And as somebody who grew up in the entrepreneurial technology world, like Israel gets technology entrepreneurship as well as probably any country in the world. It's an awesome place to be. Boaz Hamelish would come from Tel Aviv and quote unquote run marketing for a week in California. And we would do that at least twice a year. And it was so powerful for the two of us. And the thing that I never understood, Ian, was not only how powerful it was for our two organizations, it turned out the whole company knew this was going on. The field knew we did this. And so it was very hard for somebody in marketing to go, oh, those a-holes and, you know, in engineering, rah, 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 rah. Because I would sit there and go, yeah, those a-holes are my friends and you don't get to call them a-holes. You need to figure this out or I'm going to lock all of you in a room and smash your heads together. We're on the same team. You know, and to quote the Big Lebowski, this aggression will not stand. Those engineers are our engineers. And if there's something that's effed up, let's go uneff it. But there will be none of this name calling. The same thing with the field. Oh, you know, they're not taking the qualified leads. We, we are not having a lead dumb conversation here. This is our problem to solve. We need to make the number and we need to empower them to make that number. And I will not tolerate any of that traditional marketing bullshit. And the same thing was true for the heads of engineering and the heads of sales. We did not tolerate, and everybody knew that in this case, these three executives were deeply aligned, cared about each other. And if there were problems and differences, and of course there were, we were going to get in a room like adults and maybe have a real argument, maybe even yell at each other. But we were going to do it from a place of we want to go out and win in the world together. And those tactical things, breaking those internal barriers means that now everybody can work together. And if you get back to your question, Ian, as it relates to category design, if you're a CMO who is respected by the field and who is respected by engineering, man, oh man, I'll tell you, I have been a CMO that wasn't those things. And I have been a CMO who was those things. And when you're a CMO who is those things, you can drive any massive initiative to make a difference in your company that you want to drive. And I'll never forget that feeling of feeling like, wow, I can get done whatever I need to get done in this company. It's an incredibly exciting thing. And I know most of our executives felt that way as well. Our head of engineering felt that way, right? The fact that our head of engineering felt like he could drive whatever change he wanted. And if there was something big he wanted to see from marketing, he could make that change or, or create that influence. That's a very powerful place to be. And I think, frankly, as an executive, you do not get paid to awesomely run your function. That's the ticket to the dance. You get paid to make giant things happen outside the company and inside the company. And if you can't work powerfully cross-functionally, you are not going to be successful.
Yeah, I, I think it's so salient because a lot of times I think CMOs or just leaders in general, it's not to be a CMO, feel like they don't have a seat at the table or that they're not invited to certain meetings that, oh, well, that's just sales or that's just product or whatever it is. Like the CEO, you know, spends more time with them or basically there's, there's kind of that level of I'm not around when certain decisions are being made. One of the ways that you get around when certain decisions are made is when the VP of sales goes into the meeting and goes, hey, we need to pull in the CMO. We need to pull in the VP of marketing. Or the head of product comes in and says, hey, we need to pull in the head of marketing. Because if you're on their mind as a value add to the conversation always, then that's how you get into those meetings. And I'm not saying, you know, CMOs don't deserve a seat at the table or, or you know, vice versa, or like you always do deserve a seat at the table. Like n- neither of those things are necessarily always true or not true. What the truth of the matter is that if you're positioning yourself with sales and product in a way that is value additive, you will always be invited. Always. It's like the person who, you know, shows up with the expensive fifth of whiskey to the, to the party. You're always going to get invited, right? Yes. You, you got the best stuff. You always bring a good gift. And listen, you have to be legendary at that stuff. So, you know, for example, it's marketing's job to get the corporate pitch done, right? You have to deliver to the field the corporate deck, right? The PowerPoints that they use, right? And the point of view slash story at the strategic level and at the product level. That's part of your job. Now, guess what? If you're the CMO of the company, in my opinion, and you are not the most legendary person in the company at delivering that deck and pitch, then you should be fired. You have to be amazing at it. And not just amazing at delivering the pitch, but at being in front of the customers delivering the pitch. You know, so we would have uh, tons of corporate visits. And I think tactically a corporate visit program is an incredibly powerful thing for a CMO to create and to partner with the head of sales on. We can talk about the tactics around that if you want. Like like executive briefing center, like ABC? Yes, yes. In my, in, in my opinion, CMO runs that. And in my opinion, we treat the customers to a mind-blowing experience when they come. And part of that is the sales rep, the bag-carrying sales rep from North Carolina who's bringing in some you know manufacturing company and their top three or four executives needs to email, if you're the CMO, needs to email your admin three weeks ahead of that meeting and say, is Jimmy available? Because I want Jimmy to deliver the corporate pitch. Because if you are not the best person in the company at representing the company and you're the CMO, you better get busy becoming the most legendary person to represent the company. And whether that's in front of a customer or on CNBC or given a a keynote in front of 5,000 people or wherever it is, you need to be legendary at representing your company and you you can't create a pitch a deck a story a point of view and say okay well i'm i'm the you know marketing created it you guys have to figure out how to give it no no way what do you think is the most common mistake that you see experienced marketers make like talented marketers that are working on category design that are doing the right things that are trying to do the right things that do have some of those good relationships but still just can't quite get it right. So I think they come in two, two flavors typically. The first one is, look, you don't get to do category design. You don't get to do strategy. You don't get to do high impact, high value stuff 
if you can't wipe your own butt. So if the field isn't getting leads, you're fired. If, if the basics of product marketing and MRDs and PRDs and IUDs and all that stuff doesn't work, forget it. You're fired. So don't be confused. The tactical, practical, and I don't mean that in a pejorative way. I mean it in a very laudatory way. The basic day in and day out of running marketing needs to be legendary. As a CMO, I think you need to say to yourself, we are going to have the most effective and respected organization in the company. And we're going to have a playful competition with HR, with finance, with, you know, engineering with sales as to whose organization is the best run organization. And one of my harbingers for that is, are people trying to steal your people? That's right? a great one. So that's the first thing. And I think there's a way to construct the team to set marketing up to win that way. And we can talk about that if you like, Ian. But I think that's the first thing. You cannot expect a seat at the table around strategic topics like category design if the field has no leads, if engineering doesn't know what to build, if campaigns suck, if your user conference is a joke or, you know, whatever it is, the basic practice, if, if your SEO doesn't work or you have a crap website, et cetera, right? So all that stuff, you need to be legendary on that or you don't get to play. That's I love that. Thing. Basically just table stakes is you have to be an excellent tactical, all of the members of your team have to be excellent tactical marketers. I love it. I mean, it, it's, it's super hard, but that is the table stakes, right? Like, this is the reason why, like, look, if, if you were look, to go to the product to team, a, they engineers. Right. Would you listen to the head of engineering if engineering hadn't shipped anything for two years of substance? Would you go to a fat personal trainer? No. You're not going to go to a fat personal trainer. You're not going to do that. If you like, if, you know, if you train martial arts, you're going to go train martial arts with somebody who's never been in a fight? No. You're not going to do that, right? You want to go train with a champion. And so you don't get to play unless all, uh, here's a simple one. I could tell you whether the CMO sucks in five seconds. Send me the about us section of the press release. And I can tell you whether the CMO is an idiot or not. Oh, I love it. Why do you say that? Because if you read it and it's a bunch of bizno babble, then the CMO is an idiot. There's another word that begins with A and ends with whole. But if the about, if you can't get the company to have a clear about us on the website or on a press release, then you're not a real CMO. You're done. Because I know the rest of your marketing organization sucks because you can't even communicate that. Or even worse, you succumb to some stupid committee that wanted to make sure that every moronic buzzword du jour is in the about us section of the press release of the website. So if you can't get that done, you're not going to get category design done. <laughs> you know what I think is really interesting? We talk about how we only work with mission-driven companies. And it's so funny how many companies don't have a mission on their website. Like, come on. Like, you, what you are think you up that to, man? Why does this matter? Why should I care? What problem are you solving? Why is that problem important? It's so comical to me. Like, how, how could you spend so much time, effort, and energy building, especially in startup world where it's like, you're at 2,000 employees or 1,500 employees or whatever, or like, you know, campaigning about an IPO. You do, there's no tab on your website that says the mission of your company. Get out of here. Right. And the mission of the company can't just be to get to a billion dollars or to get to $20 billion market cap or to IPO or to whatever the financial milestone is. Look, th those things are important and they can be part of the conversation for sure. I mean, when you are a $100 million company and you get to that day where you cr cross the billion dollar in sales threshold, 
that's a freaking exciting day that you will always remember. So those financial goals are important. But the mission of the company, to your point, Ian, can't be to be a billion dollars or to be $10 billion or to IPO or to whatever it is, right? That it can't be the mission. The mission must be something that matters, centered around solving a problem that matters. You know, in the early days at Microsoft, it was an incredibly powerful mission, which was a personal computer on every desktop. That drove the company for the better part of two decades, right? Because they, they really believed deeply that personal computing was going to make a giant difference in the business world and in, in the world at large, right? Look, Jim Collins tells us this, right? Read Built to Last and Good to Great. Yep. Two of the most legendary books ever written. I think, I'm not sure which one, but one of them might still be the biggest selling business book of all time. Anyway, he breaks this down. He calls them BHAGs, Big, Hairy, Audacious Goals. Yep. And, and that's what a mission should be, and it should be tied to a BHAG, and it should be around doing something in the world that matters, not just getting to some financial milestone, although I think the financial milestones are, are incredibly powerful. They're also super important to have those milestones, both for your team and for the leadership to know that you are, at the end of the day, beholden to results. Like you have to be, you know, like I process driven, totally understand that. But you have to, at the end of the day, like it's about results, like driving pipeline. Absolutely. Like sales cl like closed at the end of the day. And listen, we live in a time, I'm not sure you'll, you'd want me to use the world word, but George Carlin used to call, he used to have a word for this of the, the I'll just, let me call it this way, the wimpification of America. That's sort of a politer way of saying what George Carlin sure. said, right? And so it's almost like rude to talk about winning. It's, it's rude to talk about beating the snot out of competitor. Oh, well, oh, that's so aggressive. Oh, that's so, that's so, you're creating a hostile work environment to talking about that we should win and beat, beat the crap out of our, oh, that's, what are you talking about, man? This is business. There are winners and losers. I mean, culturally, I believe, to your point, you have to be an organization that is insane about results, right? My favorite equation in the history of the world is results do not equal no results plus an excuse. And so getting clear about what a result is and isn't is very important, right? And you, if you want to have a legendary career, you want to be somebody who the world views as a result production machine. As in, we have three people we're allowed in this foxhole and the whole world wants you to be one of those three people. You want to train yourself to be the person that gets counted on. You want to be that person. You know, we recently had Andre Iguodala on my podcast, right? He's the best. He is so, so amazing. By the way, do you know he's invested in 50 tech startups in the Bay Area? Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, he's the man. I mean, he is legendary for sure. He's also probably one of the smartest basketball players who's ever lived. And by the way, just as a side note, you know, I I've met a lot of celebrities and athletes and had a bunch of them on the podcast and all that. And, you know, you can have a lot of different experiences with some of these people. Some of them are not actually very good people to be around. Andre Iguodala is an absolute professional and a gentleman, as well as being smart and an MVP world champion. You know, when he came to do my podcast, he showed up on time. No handlers, no nothing. He shook my hand, sat down. We did the mic test. We pressed play. We had an amazing conversation. And... 
That was that. Just a complete professional. But anyway, you want to be that guy. Andre, when the game is on the line and we need a three-point shot, Andre wants the ball. Now, sometimes he gets it and sometimes he doesn't because he's on a team of superstars, which is what we all want to be on. But no matter how many superstars are on the team, we all want to train ourselves to be the one that the rest of the team counts on when we need the most critical results when the season is on the line. And Andre has done that. And that's who we want to be in business. And and you can't design a legendary category. You can't. It's even like, I want a seat at the table. Great. You want a seat at the table? Be undeniable. That's how you get a seat at the table. Yeah. And the, the Andre analogy is really good, too, because for those who are basketball fans out there, he's kind of like a Swiss army knife for the Warriors, where they have, you know, these three ridiculously good offensive players and Andre's kind of been the defensive player that could guard anyone that's why he's so impactful but also he's like a classic glue guy former multi-year all-star best player on his team for his entire life right until from the age of probably six years old until he got to the Warriors actually when he got to the Warriors he was the best player and you know Steve Kerr legendarily had him coming off the bench because he wanted the second team to have a little extra IQ on the floor. And Andre humbly did that. But I think it's a really good analogy for marketers where you might have a rock star, you know, the Steph Curry might be your head of product and, you know, Kevin Durant might be your head of sales and you have all these, all these rock stars around you and you need to figure out the way to enhance what they're doing in a way that sometimes You're just not going to get seen as the guy or gal, but the people who know is your teammates. That's the person who you're looking to get the the results from. Do your teammates respect you? Maybe I should look up the quote while we're talking. One of my favorite quotes is that quote. It's amazing what we can accomplish when we don't care about who gets the credit, who said that. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Right? And so, uh, look, I don't care whether you're the CMO or the UFO or what you are. If you're on a team, your job is to have that team win, right? And- well, and so, you know, to your point about results and about kind of the mission stuff, we had Jolly Bisharat, who was a VP of marketing at Amazon back in 1999, and she was sharing some Jeff Bezos stories. And the results that he was always going for, always still is going for, is being obsessed about the customer, right? So those results continually over time being obsessed about the customer was always the goal, always. And look at where that got them, right? So as you think about what those goals are and, and what the mission is or, or what you're seeking to achieve, it doesn't just have to be like, oh, we need to hit this number. There needs to be other goals, whether it's customer success goals or, or whatever it is that you have. Have you seen that in category design as it relates to customer development and customer success yes uh, by the way duh it was truman who said it and he said it's amazing what you can accomplish if you don't care who gets the credit harry s truman love there it. there you go yes and so here's the here's the thing with customers first of all you know this dumb expression oh it's it, it's just business well for me it's never been just business business has always been personal i think treating business like it's not personal is asinine because what motivates us in life is what motivates us in life. So that's just my belief. So with that said, as it relates to customers, hey, listen, these people, 
you know, depending on what business you're in. But, you know, I grew up in the tech industry and most of my career has been in B2B and enterprise. And so a customer is giving you millions of dollars for your software for zeros and ones. And in many cases, the economic buyer, the person who, who writes their name on the PO is making, if not a career decision, certainly one that will reflect either very well or very poorly on them, depending on how this project or initiative around your technology goes. That has been the case for the bulk of my career. So with that said, Ian, if I'm going to look somebody in the eye and say, hey, that'll be $20 million, please, I have a responsibility to make them as successful as I possibly can. I just think that's where you got to come from. I just don't know any other way to do it, right? You know, I always joke about whenever we're sitting down with, with, our, with our clients about my number one goal is to not get you fired. And I don't mean it as in a, we're not going to make huge bets. We're not going to try to do things that gets you promoted, right? Like that's the secondary goal is to, to get you promoted. But I think that you need to, I think you just need to empathize with people about the fact that a lot of times they're making a bet on you. That's a career bet. They truly can be fired for your actions. Right. And it gives an, a really easy target for leadership to be like, well, you screwed that up. And that's well, emblematic of you not at, thinking about blank or whatever. Look at what we have going on right now. Marriott had for multiple years, hackers in their system, stealing half a billion of, and they probably have yours and mine, right? Because if you stayed oh. at a Marriott, if you stayed at a Starwood, yeah, 100%. Yeah. Yes, I have, right? And so do they have my credit card number right now? Do they have my address? Do they have, they, they probably do. Well, here's what I know. There's a dude there has the following title, Chief Information Security Officer. And that dude is fired today <laughs> because that guy let a very bad thing happen. And so I, I couldn't agree with you more. And so I like to do business in a way that has my customers get promoted. And I also, to the point on, the magic triangle. I like to do category design and marketing that causes emergency board meetings and CEO firings at my competitors. I love it. I think that I love your insistence on, you know, obviously legends and losers, which by the way, we need to talk about the rebrand, but about the idea that there are winners and losers in the market. And the thing that I think to your point about how people get scared about winning and losing you know, we're huge collaborators at the mission. We always believe we have a growth mindset. We always believe that the market is abundant, that you can create more value in the market, that there's all sorts of collaboration to be had. And I, I think that that's generally a really good business mindset. But if you don't believe that your team is the one who can do it better than your competitors, like that's part of the reason, because we're going to do it better than they can do it. Like that's the reason why you want to win that 76% of the marketplace that category kings have is because your team, you believe your team is going to do it better. It's a vote on your team and the product and how you're going to continue serving your customers needs. And I think people just sometimes don't take it personal enough. And I think for CMOs, a lot of this has to do with the type of campaigns that they feel potentially embarrassed or risk averse to making. How did you deal with risk aversion in the course of your career? So I learned something early on that served me very well. And let me share a story with you, if I could, that will elucidate this, this approach. So at Mercury, we sold the company to HP for $4.5 billion, making HP my favorite company of all time. 
after that happened, at the time, HP had an enterprise business and a consumer business. The enterprise business is what bought us. There was a gal named Deb Nelson running uh, marketing in the enterprise business, what today is, I think, called HPE, if I'm not mistaken. And she's a great leader, great CMO. You should have her on your podcast. She's a spectacular marketing leader. And so at the time, they wanted to do some big-time marketing around the fact that they had acquired Mercury. It was the biggest software purchase in the history of HP. It was the biggest purchase HP had done since they bought Compaq, which, you know, was a giant purchase. Anyway, it was a very big deal. It was the biggest check Mark heard, who was the CEO at the time, had ever written. Very big deal. And they wanted to do marketing around it. They had a creative agency, an advertising agency, who, who I won't name because why stick a fork in their eye? But suffice it to say, they were one of the biggest, most successful, well-known advertising agencies in the world and certainly in the United States of America. They were HP's agency at the time. So we have this meeting. We're going to run a bunch of ads, right? And there's you know 2,000 people in the meeting because you're a big company and that's what happens at big companies. And I happen to be sitting next to Deb in the meeting. And this agency is going to present their ad creative for, you know, it's going to run the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and all these places, right, promoting this acquisition. So we sit down. It takes two hours for everybody to introduce themselves because there's so many people in the effing meeting. And we do all that. And we sit down. And before we're about to begin, Deb says to me, Christopher, is there anything you'd like to say before we kick off the meeting? And I say to the guy who's the head of the Super Ding Dong agency, I say, let's just call him Jimmy. I say, oh, yeah, Jimmy, I have one question for you. Do you believe what you're about to present to us is legendary work? And Jimmy says to me, what do you mean? And I say, well, Jimmy, this is HP. We're the largest technology company in the world. This is the biggest check Mark Hurd's ever written. And I go through all the things. You know, this is a very important thing we're doing here. And you guys are, and I name the agency, one of the greatest ad firms of all time. And... I think if we're going to do advertising around this acquisition, it should be legendary. And so I want to know from you that do you think this is legendary work? And in front of many people, Jimmy says, can we have 48 hours? Oh, my gosh. Because, A, he knows it's not legendary work. And, B, even though he had just met me, he knew the likelihood of him presenting this stuff and me saying to him, hey, Jimmy, explain to me why you think this, and I'll say crappy, creative, is legendary. And I was going to make him explain it to me when he knew, well, it wasn't. And so what's my point? My point is, if you want to be a legendary CMO, if you want to be a legendary anything, you have to set the bar. And I have found a powerful way to set the bar is to ask somebody else. So whenever anybody came to present me with anything they said was a final product, whether it was a campaign or a product plan or whatever it was, a sales plan, whatever it was, they always knew they were going to get the question. And the question is, do you think this is legendary? And if the answer to that question is no, why are you coming into my office? Now, if you're coming into my office saying, hey, we're in the middle, we're halfway through working on something and we want your input to help make it legendary all day long. But if you're going to show up in front of me with a final execution of something, I'm going to ask you that question. And over time, everybody knew I was going to ask that question. And so, A, it takes the bar up. And B, as a leader, what it also helps you do, Ian, is it tells you where other people's bar is. So when you say to them, you know, is this your idea of legendary? I was just recently at a corporate event. And I have very high standards for corporate events. And I thought the event sucked. 
I thought it sucked a lot, particularly for who this company was putting on the event. So I asked the executive who in marketing who was responsible for the event, hey, did you think this event was legendary? And we had a very frank conversation. Because <laughs> you can't defend crapola as legendary. Look, you can put whipped cream on dog I don't care how good the whipped cream is, everyone's going to know it's dog And so that's a technique I've always used to hopefully inspire people to do legendary work, but also let them know I'm going to want their opinion. Man, that's so good. I, I, I mean, it's great for employees. It's great for vendors pitching you. It's great for, you know, agencies that you're working with. How did by, you do By the way, it? on the agency side, I'll tell you yeah. what I like to do. And this is why I love to work with Peggy Burke at 1185. The first time we ever worked together, we had hired them as, as our agency. And we were getting together to brief them on the thing we were doing and the thing they were going to go work on for us and so forth and so on. And look, I know what it's like to be a creative person in a corporate world. So this is what I always say to creative agency type people, whether it's PR or branding or whatever it is, creative writing, I don't care what it is, campaigns, anything, events. Listen, here's what I know about being a creative person in the business world. I know that the vast majority of the most legendary creative ideas you've ever had never see the light of day because your clients or your company don't have the balls, brains, or bucks, or all three, to actually execute something legendary. It gets watered down. It gets turned into crapola. It gets, it gets run over by a committee. And, and the most legendary creative campaigns and brands and whatever you want to talk about end up getting massively watered down if not turned to complete crapola. And I know as a creative person how frustrating that is. So here's what I want you to know. I want you guys to go back and do the most legendary work of your lives. Work that when gets executed, you will be so proud of. At 90 years old, you will be telling your grandchildren about this thing that you did back in the day. That's the work I would like you to go do. And here's what I will promise you. If you do that, we will execute it. We will not water that crap down. We will not turn it into garbage. We will not let the committee run over it with a bus 15 times. I will stand for your legendary work. If you do legendary work, I will stand for it. And when you say that to creative types, they go and do legendary work. And you got you to hold up your end of the bargain. But that's, and whether it's software designers or brand designers, that's always the approach that I have taken with the kind of creative people who are trying to do breakthrough things. I love that advice and it's something some of my, my friends in marketing have created some really cool campaigns involving some really good celebrities and all sorts of stuff. I'll just say that there's been a reunion on, uh, of the office folks that's like been making a huge splash on social media and all this sort of stuff. I know somebody who created a really cool marketing campaign where they got a bunch of those folks together and it never saw the light of day because it got cut. That sort of stuff is freaking crazy. My job yeah. as a leader, my job as a CMO was to, was to do what was required with the executive team when necessary, the board, to get that done, whether it was a legendary breakthrough in a product idea or a campaign idea or whatever it was. That if, if we were going, if people were going to actually stretch themselves to do truly legendary things, 
then we had to fight for those legendary things and get them through, get the budget, tackle the CEO, whatever we needed to do to let that amazing work see the light of day. That's your job. That's what a leader's job is, is to create the environment and to make sure it happens. You know, one of the things that's so exciting about the partners that we've worked with at the mission is how much they go all in with us on the projects that we're doing in terms of like promoting. And this is because we're doing something very different from, I think, a lot of the other media that's that's been out there in the past. But it's worth noting because there's so many people that work with vendors and just give like the soggy yeah. handshake, you know, the, the, just this, like, what are you, why would you even spend a cent with anyone if you're not going to, you know, support it? And I just think with some of these things, like, I, I think that there's, there's guilt on both sides for sure, especially with agencies where sometimes you don't get legendary work. And then on the, you know, alternative side, sometimes they do do legendary work and they just get absolutely no support. And it's like, what are we doing here? Yes. No half ass full thing only yeah we're gonna do um, this full <laughs> you got to get out of here at some point very soon you've been very generous with your time but i got some i got a few just quick hits lightning round questions for you You ready i am ready you have a favorite app on your phone that's the most fun favorite app that's the most fun that's a great question you know this is probably a really boring answer but probably instagram you know, it, it's we've been it's getting fun. Instagram. Instagram's oh. the only social media that's really fun, I think, because I follow lots of different stuff, and I think people can, are creative on it. And so, I, I look. I also love podcasts. I'm a podcast junkie. I always have podcasts in my ear, and so you know, I like I I, I use Outcast a lot. I think that's a pretty great app for podcasts, and and there's a Stitcher. I think is pretty good as well. Stitcher's but, uh, good. You know, and I, I wish Apple would do more with Apple Podcasts, but that's probably a conversation for another day. But I think the one that I turn to for the most enjoyment, like if, I, if, I, if I'm waiting in line at the coffee shop at Verve to get a coffee or whatever, and I, and I just, you know, you want to kill five minutes to just have a little joy in your life, there's probably going to be something fun in your Instagram feed if you follow the right people, even if it's a cat video. <laughs> Especially if it's, a, if, it's a, if it's a cat video. I could watch... Have you ever seen those videos of cats uh, where people put like a cucumber behind them and they like turn around and see it and like jump like super high up in the air? I have not seen it. The it's, it's really good. I, it's, I think it's like some sort of like genetic response or that's been trained. Like maybe there were snakes that used to eat cats back in the day or something like that, but it's, <laughs> it's pretty great. Okay. Favorite, favorite ad that you've seen recently. It's a NASCAR ad and they use, I don't want to forget now. I'm going to, you know what? Maybe I'll maybe I can grab my Instagram on the computer. They you I, I videoed it on my TV and posted it because I thought it was so legendary. And I'm not a NASCAR guy. I love going fast. I'm a muscle car guy, but I you know NASCAR has never been my thing. But they use. Let me see if I can grab it here. They use a Queen song. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, it's "We Are the Champions." But they talk it. Yeah, yeah. I've taken my vows and my curtain calls. You brought me fame. You brought me fortune. You know what's so right, and and they keep going on with different drivers saying the different phrases from the song, and it is it it makes you want to like run through walls. When we were doing the uh, forty lessons of forty years of Apple ads with Lauren Vaccarella, my co-host, yeah, it was remarkable going through all of their ads and seeing how much nostalgia they did. 
I mean, it's like they had like every other ad was nostalgia driven. It's like, hey, it turns out pretty good way of doing things. Like music resonates, celebrities resonate, things that, you know, all of that stuff of where you remember where you were at a given time allows you to remember stuff a little easier. Yeah. Okay, so favorite campaign you've ever done? You know, that's tough, but I'm going to say the, the, the one that jumps to my head. I don't know if it's my absolute favorite, but because of the circumstances of it, it came to my head right away. Back in the dot-com era, I was with this company called Scient, and we became the category king in dot-com consulting, essentially. We called it e-business at the time. And we hired about 2,000 people in about 26 months. And in our, uh, we went public in our third our first quarter of our third year and we had a nine billion dollar market cap it was you know just crazy times anyway we decided in sort of mid to late august that we were going to do a high-end executive event in early october and we wanted you know the right kind of people there and this and that and the other and we had almost no time to get it done and we had no, we knew the kinds of people we wanted to get because they're high level cxos probably had their calendars booked and how were we going to get them to change their plans and come to palm springs which is where we did it and so anyway, we ran a direct marketing campaign where we sent them a Bible-sized book, and it was very high-end looking, and on the front of it, it said, the e-business guide, or, or, or how, how to win in e-business, something like that, or the guide to winning in e-business. And then the, you open it up, and the first page said, if such a book existed, it would be out of date before it was in print. So how do you learn all the best techniques and approaches to winning an e-business, you come to this event. So that was the sort of thing that we FedEx to all the CXOs we wanted. And to create buzz, we dropped a press release and announced the event and announced that the event was sold out. And we ran a full-page ad in the Wall Street Journal, and the ad said, you cannot attend. And then the copy said, Scient regrets to announce that its e-business executive innovation summit in Palm Springs on October ta, 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 is sold out for this year. To register your request to come to next year's event, go to Scient.com called Next Event. And if you have received your e-business guide to innovation book, then you're, you're good to go for this year. And the event. Oh, wow. Out. Yeah. And so, and I will never forget going to our CEO, Bob Howe, and explaining to him that this was our strategy to do this. And he, and, you know, Bob was is, is an incredible character, and he had these big hands and a very distinguishable voice. He's like, Lockhead, this sounds even crazy for you. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and we pulled it off. So I think the you can't attend as a way to announce the conference was one of the craziest and, and funnest things, and unfortunately it worked. Final question. What thing are you most excited about for the future of marketing? Wow. Well, I, I would say, here's my big aha. The future's already happened. We are living at the most exciting time in history. Today, you can walk into the Atlanta airport and instead of using your driver's license and your passport and a airline ticket to get in, to get through security and to get on the plane, you know what you use? Your face. Sitting in your pocket. Oh, that's no, true. Your face. Facial recognition for security, for getting on the plane, for the whole thing. This year at a San Francisco Giants baseball game, a little girl with a 3D printed arm threw out the first pitch. The future has happened, right? So we live at the most exciting time 
for innovation, for technology, and dare I even say, not to sound too corny, but the human race. And so what am I excited about? As a marketer, there's never been more advanced thinking strategically and tactically, and the new technologies allow us to do all kinds of things we couldn't even imagine two or three years ago. And so the size of the sandbox of ideas and of approaches and of technologies that we as CMOs, we as business leaders have, has never been greater today. And of course, that pace of innovation continues to accelerate in very exciting ways. And so I'm just stoked for all of it. IoT is underhyped. It is a very real thing. It is transforming everything. I think the ways in which data is used are massively changing. And uh, companies are being data-driven companies that can make things happen in real time with business logic in ways that we could never imagine. I think all of the marketing tools and the measurement capabilities and the ability to A-B test everything, and all, I think all that's incredibly exciting to be a very super data-oriented CMO uh, or business leader is an incredibly exciting thing and on and on. And so I just think the palette of, of places and things that we can innovate with has never been greater. And I think that's incredibly exciting. Couldn't agree more. Great last words. Christopher, thanks so much for hanging out. I'm sure we'll have you again soon. I just, you know, you're, this is a legendary episode. I appreciate it. Thank you, brother. I love what you're doing. Say hi to Chad for me. Hopefully we'll speak real soon and I'll come back anytime you have me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Marketing Trends. Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce Pardot. World-class B2B marketers use Pardot to generate and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI at every stage of the sales cycle. Empower your marketing team to become revenue-generating superheroes and let Pardot's data analysis keep an eye on the bottom line. Learn more by visiting pardot.com podcast or click on the link in our show notes. You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences. So you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, the messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster and on a much larger scale. Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.